You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I wonder how the name Maurice ever garnered the guitar version of a wolf whistle. Some people call me the space cowboy, yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me Maurice, because I speak of the pompatists of love. Hello, wonderful listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Engel, and I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the Green Lantern comics starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on my favorite characters in comicdom, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. Now, of course, Guy Gardner's only marginally seen in this book, and strangely enough, he looks more like someone who's not Guy Gardner at all. And that book is the deluxe hardcover book, Green Lantern Fear Itself, which came out the prior year to what I've been recording in. It's 1999. A little behind on it, but it's an interesting story written by Ron Mars, dealing with, well, three versions of Green Lantern. Alan Scott, Kyle Rayner, and Hal Jordan all of them dealing with a strange, creepy eyeball creature that might want to take over the world, or might not. We'll have to figure it out in the book. Plus, we're going to be covering, of course, the Green Lantern book, which this time out is going to be Green Lantern number 143. And this one is dealing with... (sighs) Graven. And the story of Joker's Last Stand, or Joker's Last Laugh, sorry... I guess this was a big company-wide pseudo-crossover where the Joker, who thought he had a brain tumor and was going to die, decided to release Joker Toxin into the slab-side maximum security prison, causing all of those inside to become Jokerized villains and do Jokerized crimes. Never read it. Don't know if it was a good storyline or not. But it's dealing with Graven, one of my favorite Kyle Rayner Green Lantern villains and that he's not in any way at all. So I'm not bearing the lead here about what I think about this story. But I'll probably have some good things to say about it. And I'll probably have some good things to say about Green Lantern for itself as well. But you'll just have to wait until after I play these podcast promos to find out what I have to say about the show. So please stick around while I play these promos and when we get back, we'll get started in our coverage of Green Lantern, number 143. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, Where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... 
Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, who put Cap's shield there? <laughs> anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's, it's on that book, and I can't move it. Dad, where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! No! Ah! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. Hey, kids. Do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition. On iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. And we are back. But before we get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 143, let's go ahead and take a look at the Just One of the Guys email bag read some letters from some of you wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, we've got another letter from my good friend to the Great White North. Hopefully it's not too cold up there yet. And it's starting out December now, so yeah, snow should be coming. But thank you, Scott Davis, for writing in. This one is entitled, When Rome Burned. The letter starts out, Hi, Sean. I was able to tackle the five-part story arc called When Rome Burned by Judd Winnick. It took me a while to understand why I was called that, and I found out that Nero was a Roman emperor, and during his time, there was a famous Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD. Overall, I thought the arc was okay. The transition to the writing for the trade is a bit hard to digest, but overall, I thought the issues were decent. I apologize that this is a long email, but I have a few things to get off my chest, it seems. With number 132, he said it was a good issue about Fatality wielding the Yellow Ring. I really like Fatality because she brings more grit to the issues and it was great to see M.D. Bright back on this issue. The, spa the splash page on page 3 with Fatality leaning, tearing up the dock was fantastic. I have a feeling that Terry has a crush on Kyle on page 5 instead of him only wanting to be his friend. Well, we 
if you're up to current issues now, you kind of kind of found out that that was the case. I'm sure we'll see how this plays out later. On page 14, when did Kyle get Robocop powers and can see a grid of the city through his crab mass? Uh, I guess the whole circle of fire thing kind of did that, maybe? Who knows? The picture of Fatality losing her arm again on page 19 was absolutely brutal. Actually, Nero's first appearance on the cover of was on the cover of issue 129, so I guess technically this is his second appearance. The advertisement for the Cottonmouth Kings looks absolutely ridiculous. I looked up some of their music on Spotify, and their music is just as bad as their name. Terrible stuff. Now I need to put on some Canadian classic Gordon Lightfoot to get that music out of my head. Oh, Gordon Lightfoot. That's, that's lovely. Thank you, Canadian Railroad Trilogy, he says. Green Lantern number 133, he said this was a decent issue about Sentinel getting worked over by Nero's Yellow Constructs. I'm disappointed about how easily Sentinel was beaten up, actually. But the cover is great, and I'm happy to see M.D. Bright back on this issue again. Ugh, the panel on page 2 with Guy thinking he'd rather be at the Knicks game while John is in a body cast is absolutely terrible. I'm really scared about what Winnick might do with Guy in future issues. Yeah, taking it taking aside from the letter for just a second, I'm kind of concerned as well. So far, he hasn't been horrible to Guy, but he has been kind of regressing him, so I'm hoping that's not going to be the case, but we'll find out. On page 6, he says, I had to reread Kyle's story that he's telling the readers about the two comets missing each other and then crashing into each other, but they said they never should have been brought together. Was this supposed to be a brain twister? Because I don't get it. Uh, I glossed over that. The whole That was the whole montage sequence of uh, Kyle and Jenny getting back together. Didn't care for it. Wow, when it got Kyle and Jade back together in two pages. It was well done, though. I'm probably being too picky here, but on page six, why is Jenny laughing at Kyle with the hot Santa girl's arm around him at the feast Christmas party? Again, I probably spent five minutes looking at this panel trying to figure it out. Uh-oh, Terry's crush on Kyle is testing the limits of now that Kyle is back together with Jade. This was a decent issue. Green Lantern number 134, I found that to be a bit of a dull issue about Kyle fighting Nero. But the splash page of the JLA on the last page was fantastic. It looks like Warrior's back, which, that was nice to see Guy in the issue, so I'll agree with that. Uh, I can't wait to see him kick ass again. Plastic Man doesn't fit in all, though. Why is he in the JLA again? Um to keep Martian Manhunter amused, probably. There you go. You mentioned this definitely has a feel of the writing for the trade, and I totally agree with you. Also, I think that I'm not that interested in Nero, to be honest. I agree the crazy speak from Nero on page 3 is pretty weird, and it seems like the art is off a bit in this issue, or maybe it's the inking. This seems like a never-ending question with Banks, doesn't it? It's funny that you don't like Guy saying boyos on page 14. Yeah, that, that just brought back horrible shades of Jar Jar Binks, and no one ever wants to think positively about Jar Jar Binks. Greenlander135, he says, I agree with you and Shag that the story barely progresses at all in this issue. Kyle and JLA basically spend the whole issue fighting Nero's yellow constructs. I found it odd that Kyle suggests murdering Nero already, but the only thing Nero has done is beat up an old Alan Scott and busted up New York a bit. And to top it off, Kyle suggests nuking Nero on page 5 with an atomic blast. I didn't like how they show Guy smiling about this suggestion, too. This doesn't seem like the characters Mars and Bo developed. Yeah, I I kind of took the idea of Guy smiling there 
as sort of him realizing what power the Green Lantern ring had and how how it was in the Green Lantern's purvey to use that power wisely and that someone who wasn't capable of handling it could do such destructive things, but they didn't because the Green Lanterns or whatever, the Green Lantern mythical energy chose people who would be good, who would be fearless, and who would use them properly not to do stuff like that. Getting back to the email, he says, Wow, Winnick writes that Kyle has been in two hurricanes as a kid, and he's also been in the eye of the storm both times. First of all, Kyle is from California, so he has to explain where Kyle was actually actually was during these hurricanes. I also know from experience, I lived in the Caribbean for four years, that the odds of being in the eye of the hurricane are very, very slim. This took me completely out of the story. The art by Banks in the issue was great, though. It was uh, great to see Warrior ripping the heads off constructs on page 14. And you mentioned that Fatality is for Kim and John the current issues of Green Lantern. That isn't the case anymore. Please see uh, Green Lantern Corps 34 for this tragic story. Ooh. Uh, I, I don't think the Lantern cast has gotten to that yet, so I may have to listen to that. You mentioned that Grant Morrison's run on the JLA again, and I definitely think I need to go back and read it. I'll put it on the list of things to do. Green Lantern 136, this was a mess of an issue and I didn't enjoy it at all. This is just another fight issue that ends with Nero blowing himself up. This story arc feels like it should have been a huge DC event, but it isn't. And here's a weird one for you. On page 4, why does Kyle think that JLA has their hands free? I've been staring at this panel and I just don't get it. It's small things like this that completely take me out of the story. Ugh. Seeing the Twin Towers getting blasted on page 5 is tough to see. Never forget. Yeah, that was one of those things where, in hindsight, it is kind of difficult to look at, but prior to September 11th, we never really thought something like that would actually happen. I mean, we had small little explosions happen that took uh, a couple of dozen lives, but nothing as massive as that, so in, in retrospect, it does feel uncomfortable. Getting back to the email, though, he says, It was funny when you guys asked who the heck were the constructs on page 8 that Kyle was creating to help battle Nero's constructs. The beatdown that Kyle gives Nero on page 14, where he's repeatedly punching him in the face on the ground, is not like Kyle. Where is all this rage coming from? Uh, the Red Lanterns. There you go. It was was actually Jet Winnick who came up with that concept before Jeff Johns. There you go. And on page 19, when Nero's parents are screaming at Nero, really made me uncomfortable reading it, especially when they're calling him whore son, whatever that means. So did Nero end up killing his parents or not? I've got to assume that he did, so I don't know. It's I'm certain it will be explained later on in the story. On page 20, who is that girl Kyle is having sex with because, he sure, because she sure doesn't look like Jenny? No, she had no internal organs, so I've got to figure it was like a... A real doll or something? I don't know. I'll give Evil Sham a pass on this one because he's such a great artist and the coloring wasn't bad, he said. It felt a bit rushed when Kyle asked Jenny to marry him because I didn't think they got back together within... because didn't they just get back together within two pages in GL133? You guys were hilarious making fun of that last panel with Jenny's small waist and Kyle looking like Hans and Franz. On page 120, it says that it took the JLA 12 hours to repair the city. Where was the Flash and Green Lantern on this one? They could have got it done in seconds. And wait a second, how in the heck did Batman get Jenny's ring anyway? 
Last we saw it was in GL122 when Jon Stewart blew up Fatality underwater and the ring went with it. Did I miss something, or is this when it completely messing up the continuity again? As far as I know, it has something to do with the character of Anarchy, who I guess was a secondary character in the Bat books and had her own book for a while. And I recall seeing an issue of Anarchy that had her as a Green Lantern on the cover, and I wondered what the heck was going on with that, but I guess that's how Batman recovered that Green Lantern ring. So there's your kind of my not completely knowledgeable explanation, but I think that's what it was. Anyway, he finishes up saying, Sean, I apologize for the link of this email. Obviously, some issues rub me the wrong way a bit. You mentioned in this arc was not necessarily bad. It was just average. I have to agree with you. To put things in perspective, I think it was a really comfortable. I was really comfortable with the Mars run, and I'm having trouble adjusting to the new writer. Thomas DJ keeps saying things will get better, so I'm trying to hang on right now. Thanks, and have a great week, Scott. Eh, I can kind of agree with you. I'm certain things are going to get better with Winnick's run. It's not that they've been bad, but. After you got the development of Kyle through the Mars run and everything that had been done with the character then, it's just kind of a change, and there's just some getting used to it. I know we're almost 10, 15 issues in, but still, it's it's he's not really clicking as well with me as Mars did when he started up with the character, so there you go. But yes... I'm certain Tom G.J. wouldn't lead me astray, and I'm hoping things are going to get better from here on out. But thanks, Scott, for writing in. I'm going to close up the email bag right now because, yeah, that was kind of a long one. So thank you for writing in. If you guys would like to write in, the email address, as always, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Go ahead and write in if you'd like to. But for now, let's go ahead and put away the email, and we'll start in with our comic, Green Lantern number 143. Green Lantern number 143 had a cover date of December 2001 and release date of October 24, 2001. Again, the cover price was 225 US and 375 Canada, and the title was I'm Here All Week, Make Sure to Take Care of Your Waitresses. Alright. The writer was Judd Winnick, the penciler was Dale Eaglesham, the inker was Rodney Ramos, the colors and separations were by Moose Bowman. Letterer was Chris Eliopoulos, assistant editor was Nachi Castro, the editor was Bob Shrek, and the cover art was by Jim Lee. After a quick and creepy interlude showing a naked Alex Nero still being tormented by demonic visions of his parents in a remote eastern European village, we cut to the Statue of Liberty, which now bears the disfigured clown-like visage of the Joker. Saying that this doesn't seem like the Joker's M.O., Green Lantern's Kyle Rayner and Jenny Lynn Hayden use their rings to repair Lady Liberty to her original form, all the while thinking that this defacement might be the work of one of the recently Jokerized villains. And their guess might be, not be too far off, as we cut to a local bookstore where the bastard son of Darkseid, Graven, browses through the humor section in a search for the ultimate joke. Back at Kyle's apartment, he and Terry are finishing up their latest strip for Feast magazine, when Kyle notices a sense of sadness surrounding his sidekick. Asking what is wrong, Kyle finds out that Terry's parents found out that he was gay, and they weren't too happy about it, with his father even threatening to kick him out of the house. 
Kyle offers to help, but Terry says that he's all right, that it's just he and his parents are on speaking terms right now. Thinking back on it, maybe commenting on how fabulous Britney Spears' shoes were wasn't the best way of keeping his orientation a secret. Kyle, ever the enlightened one, mentions it probably would have raised less suspicions if Terry had commented about her boobs. Meanwhile, across all of New York City, comedy clubs are blowing up real good, and the joke-rised Graven is putting on a show for a captive audience at the said Nullivan Theater. Of course, with most of the audience having cell phones, the word of their capture got to police as well as Green Lantern, who hooks the ham off stage and delivers some consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, to the deranged despot. But the beatdown has to be cut short, as Jenny spies a series of tripwires attached to every exit of the theater, and the wires are attached to a 100-megaton nuclear bomb. Knowing what he has to do, Kyle traps Graven, scoops up the bomb, and heads skyward, using his newly discovered powers to contain the blast. One so big, its effects are witnessed around the globe. And with that, Kyle realizes what the power within him truly means. Unfortunately, now so does a now-focused and determined Alex Nero. I know all of this is leading up to the Ion storyline that so many people have raved about, and the build-up to it has been really good. I wonder how Nero and Oblivion are going to play into it, but again, I guess I'll find out about that soon enough as well. The whole Joker's Last Laugh story that I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the episode was a story that dealt with the Joker finding out that he had inoperable brain cancer, so he decided to Jokerize all the villains that were locked in the slab with him. Why he was locked in the slab, I don't know, because you would think he'd be in Arkham. But maybe this was going on during the whole uh, Cataclysm storyline over in Batman, where there was an earthquake that rocked Gotham, and maybe, maybe Arkham was shut down so prisoners were taken to the slab? Could be. In the end, it was revealed that the CAT scans of the Joker's brain were switched with someone else's as an attempt to make him act more rationally in his quote-unquote dying hours. Obviously, of course, it failed, but I don't know if the story did as a whole, as, like I said, I haven't read it. But this doesn't really specifically seem to tie in all that much to the whole Joker's last laugh story. I mean, the Joker's in no way in it, and Graven is one of the characters who gets Jokerized. Really isn't that interesting to me, so... Yeah, overall, it's just more storyline leading up to the whole Ion thing. But other than that, marginal issue. But let's try and find a little bit of the good in it. We'll start with the cover. This one was interesting. It's the first cover that Jim Lee has done for the book, and he'll come back to do some later covers along the line. Uh, you can definitely tell it's a Jim Lee pose, especially the jokerized face of Raven there. That is very much a Jim Lee look with probably more teeth than any being ever had in his life. 
if you thought J.H. Williams was kind of wacky with his teeth, then yeah, Jim Lee beats him to death with it. Plus the pose of Kyle on there is kind of awkward. It looks like his spine's been broken to the left, and why in the heck does he have demon bat wings? Or is that just part of Graven's goth? I don't even know. It's a cover, so there you go. Page three, for everyone who is wanting to know about Nero, we finally find out what happened to him as he's lying naked, chained up in a Transylvanian forest, being tormented by the demonic images of his parents while they've been decapitating nearby villagers. Kind of a creepy way to be, but again, yeah, I guess it's progressing the story of Nero. And moving to page four, we get the uh, Construct Demon beating Nero with a club of thorns. Hmm. A near-naked guy being impaled with thorns. Yeah, there's no religious imagery here. Moving on to page five, I guess this defacement of the Statue of Liberty is par for the course for some of the things going on in the Joker's Last Lap crossover. I can't be really certain because, like I said, I wasn't reading comics around this time, but it's it's a nice image of the creepily destroyed Statue of Liberty. However, in Winnick's writing, we get Jenny kind of dissing the Riddler, calling him a second-rate Joker wannabe in his sort of riddles as kind of silly. So I think that's just Winnick. Winnick really dismissing the sort of Batman rogues gallery. So uh, that's, I don't know whether that's par for the course or whether that's actually engaging or not, but I never really thought of the Riddler as that negative, a Batman villain, especially when you think of people like Calendar Man. So... But then we move to page six, which is by far my favorite portion of the book, where we get the introduction of the big bad, who's Graven. Yes, Graven, the character that no one cared about before, and no one cares about now. Pages seven through ten, we get more subplot with Terry and him telling his parents about his homosexuality. The heavy-handedness isn't becoming too overpowering, but it could easily swing that way. Winnick is really walking a fine line and doing it pretty well, not being too preachy, but not ignoring the subject matter either. He's striking a pretty good balance of letting this secondary character develop throughout the storyline without making him forefront. You're not getting the idea that the Green Lantern book is suddenly becoming an issue book where... Every issue we have to deal with homosexuality or some other, well, issue that I don't think necessarily needs to be in the book. Comics can tackle these things, but when a comic, especially a superhero comic, becomes dependent upon that as its plot point, then it really starts to lose me as a comic. Pages 11 and 12, so Graven's big screen, big scheme in this entire plot was to blow up all the comedy clubs in New York City. Uh, I know that's not a good thing, but however, on page 12, one of the clubs looks like it's hosting Carrot Top, so if Carrot Top was actually there when it blew up, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Page 13, I think I made reference to this being the Ned or the said Nullivan Theater. 
and it looks kind of like it's the Ed Sullivan Theater, even though it doesn't say that's what it is. But being a New York landmark where certain comedians come to perform, I could only think it'd be the Ed Sullivan where the Late Night with David Letterman show would have been taping. So there you go. But then my last notes for this are pages 17 through 20, where Kyle gets all ethereal and glowy here and pretty much effortlessly contains the bomb, Graven, and the blast all in one fell swoop without really thinking about it. It's all kind of vague of what's going on, but both Oblivion and Parallax are mentioned. So you've got to kind of wonder whether those characters or something about those characters is going to be coming up in an ongoing storyline. Like I said, I, I know what's supposed to be happening, but I don't know the details of it. So I'm interested to find out. Overall, like I said, an okay issue. The inclusion of Graven did really nothing to make it more interesting. And having it tied in with the Joker's Last Laugh storyline also didn't really give a connection. Because despite the fact that the Joker is an interesting villain, since I haven't read the Joker's Last Laugh storyline, I would have no idea what this has in relation to it. So there you go. Maybe some of the ads will make me happy in the book. And well, we might be kind of, maybe the ads won't make me happy as the first ad is for a Nintendo, Nintendo GameCube, which is a happy thing because it's a fun system. But the image here is a naked person in a sort of like demolition man sort of cube frozen all naked in there thankfully with his uh with his junk covered up so that's always good but yeah i guess inside your nintendo gamecube is a frozen miniaturized person that's why it was such a neat system okay then we get probably one of the most awkward lines for an advertisement ever if one is good then a handful must be better uh, think about that for a while, and then realize that this is an advertisement for Starburst, and we see a young woman with a bunch of Starburst fruit chews stuffed in her mouth. If one is good, a handful must be better. Of stuffing things. Ugh. And then after that, we get an advertisement for the PlayStation 2 or Game Boy Color version of the video game The Mummy Returns. Yes, you yourself could play as Brendan Fraser, the not Fraser, Fraser, as the Indiana Jones wannabe who fights the guy who would eventually be Darkman and The Rock as a crappy CGI scorpion. Pretty certain the uh, game on the PlayStation was far more entertaining than the CGI in the movie, but that's just me. Then after that, we get an advertisement for the JVC DVD player, which has a tie-in with the Lord of the Rings. So basically, you could enter to win a trip for two to the premiere of the Lord of the Rings in New Zealand and then tour some of the actual movie locations. I guess this would have been kind of interesting in a DVD player and possibility to go see Lord of the Rings locations, so that's kind of neat. But then it turns completely the opposite way, as we get an advertisement for the DVD of... Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, and if you don't remember this movie, this is the first sort of CGI movie that was supposed to capture um, humans in a way that was supposed to be realistic, but it didn't simply because it fell into the uncanny valley of the characters looking human-like, but having that sort of dead look in their eyes, so watching it 
didn't really make you feel like you were watching actual people, that you were watching simulacrums or just golems of people. It was it was creepy, and from what I've seen of the movie, not really all that entertaining a story. I don't know what Final Fantasy fans might think of it, but I know I didn't enjoy it. Then a few more pages in, we get an advertisement for Odyssey, I guess it's a Magic the Gathering card-playing game. Maybe an expansion pack, which has a bunch of images of barbarians and undead and dwarves and magic users fighting various Magic the Gathering beings. I never play the game, so no idea. We get that same advertisement for Skittles with the Mayan or Incan people looking at the... uh, Bursting rainbow of Skittles coming down from the ground. That's still kind of awkward. Oh, here we go. The middle inside cover is, or the middle inside pullout, is a basically a two-page poster for Smallville, the uh, WB series that premiered Tuesday, October 16th. Uh, if you want to hear more about Smallville, I'd suggest you go check out Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. He does, I think, every sixth week a, uh, uh, basically a, <clears throat> Not a synopsis, but he basically covers uh, part of a season of Smallville. I think by this time he should be well into season two, talking about the show. Trentus is a big fan of Smallville, and I enjoy the show, probably not to the extent that he does, but I know there are people who dislike it and people who like it. But if you do like it, go check out Trentus's show, because he does a great job covering this. And then the page right after that is for Boxing Fever, which looks like it might be kind of a version of Super Punch-Out, but it's on the Game Boy Advance. Got a really awkward-looking guy that you're fighting. Weird. We get a two-page ad of the Hey Kids Comics column promoting Smallville, and then on the other side of the ad is an advertisement for Corn Nuts, uh, sponsored by EA Sports Supercross. I guess it's a video game where you ride motorcycles. It's a weird advertisement. Then a few more pages in, we get an advertisement for Arctic Arctic Thunder, which is the uh, the snowmobile racing game. I think I've seen this in I think I've seen this in the arcades. I guess this is the PlayStation Two version of it. Neat. Then we get another advertisement for an anti drug advertisement, which had these two kids, one an older kid and one a younger kid. I guess they're brothers, and one is saying that he likes wrestling, cartoons, grinding handrails, and that he doesn't smoke weed. It's not my thing. Essentially, it's saying if you are an older brother and have a sibling, or if you're an older sister and have a sibling, your younger sibling tends to emulate you. So if you decide to do something negative, chances are that child will decide to do something negative. And being a parent, I can kind of agree with that. So... Maybe not necessarily the drug thing specifically, but kids do tend to emulate emulate their siblings, so it's a good advertisement. Then the next page is an image of a very Nordic, axe-wielding Viking character, and it's an advertisement for the Dark Age of Camelot, which is a MMO a little bit before World of Warcraft, so there you go. Then after that is an advertisement for the album from Aliyah, that includes the, uh, it's her self-titled album, it includes the song We Need a Revolution. And I'm assuming this is a uh, album that came out after her unfortunate death. I think she, 
I want to say she died in a plane crash. I'm not exactly certain. But I know her death happened prior to the publishing of this book. So the ad in this doesn't feature Aaliyah. It features a sort of anime-style drawing of her. But I guess if you're a fan of Aaliyah, then this is an album that you'd want to pick up. It's one of her posthumous ones, which never seems to happen for uh, many artists. You don't get artists releasing albums, you know, after they've died at all. Then, you know, there seems to be more ads in these books than there were before. Here's another ad for a video game for the PlayStation 2. It's Spy Hunter, and rather than it being the top-down one, it's more of a not really Grand Theft Auto, well, maybe sort of Grand Theft Auto type look of a game as you're driving the uh, Spy Hunter car trying to, uh, shoot down the other various vehicles. I know this isn't the one quite yet with, uh, oh, who was it? I want to say Vin Diesel was part of one. Maybe it was The Rock, but I don't think this is that one. Then, uh, this is, this is kind of nice. The, uh, back inside page for the book has, uh, a very iconic version of Superman standing in front of a, uh, Sort of a that uh, shield, not the Captain. It's sort of like the original Captain America shield with the uh, stars on the top and the red stri- red and white stripes going down, saying, "In recognition of all who suffered September 11th, and admiration for our nation for our nation's real life heroes from everyone at DC Comics." And it's I can't remember who the artist is, but it's that iconic image that was featured. Oh, on. I want to say that Carrie Gamble maybe redid it on an adventure of uh, one of the uh, Superman books during the early 80s. Annie Leland just covered this over at Hey Kids Comics, but it's Superman there with the eagle perching on his arm, and it's it's a really nice image. And yeah, like I said, this is the first issue post 9-11 that uh, DC has done, so it's nice for them to have a little recognition for the people who passed away in that and the... Uh, the soldiers and, well, the firefighters and police officers who were traumatized and even killed in the blast. So, yeah. That's kind of a downer. I guess we now should uh, turn our advertising sites to the back inside cover, which is Capri Sun, the big pouch of strawberry kiwi with two-thirds more Capri Sun sugary goodness. And then finally, the back outside cover is, oh, who is this? Uh, Matt Hoffman, that makes sense, as he's riding his uh, bicycle upside down, doing a flip or something, and trying to pour chocolate milk into a glass. Great taste, strong bones, why wouldn't you risk your neck for it? Well, because I don't like riding my bicycle upside down, maybe that's why. But there you go for the ads, there you go for the issue, hope you enjoyed it. It was another issue. And we're going to be getting to another issue. This one, quite a big one. It's going to be Green Lantern Fear itself. But we'll do this after some podcast promos. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. 
I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. R. What's that stand for? Robin. Hello, everyone. This is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin. Everyone loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? I'm right in the middle of uh, recording an ad for my my podcast. I'll I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy wonder time. Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because... Everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. And we're back. So let's go ahead and move into our second book this time out. This one's a whopper. Yeah, well, maybe that's the incorrect statement. This one's a big one. It's called Greed Lantern Fear Itself. This one was cover dated in 1999 and released on April 21st, 1999 for the hardcover and September 8th of 1999 for the softcover. The cover price was $24.95 US for the hardcover and $14.75 for the softcover, so by far the most pricey book I have covered on this show. The title of the story was Fear Itself, the writer was Ron Mars, the artist was Brad Parker, the letterer was Chrissy Leopolis, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. Outside the Smithsonian Museum, a gloved, trench-coated man, who is definitely not a Nazi, hands a $1 bill to his taxi driver. Entering the building, the tote-liked professor, who again, is definitely not a Nazi, asks the information clerk for directions to the storage area. The proto-Ben Stiller gives him the directions, but asks about his curious accent, which the professor assures him is Swiss and in no way German because he is 100% not a Nazi. Making his way down to the basement, the professor meets with two other people who are revealed to be... Nazis! 
The trio don their Doctor Strange cosplay outfits and start a dark ritual to summon a being to seal the fate of the world. Meanwhile, on the White House lawn, the assembled members of the Justice Society of America are posing for a photo op with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. After finishing up the pic, Jay Garrick speeds off to make sure that the surrounding area is clear, then returns with news of a giant tentacled eyeball stalk menacing the Capitol. The JSA spring into action, with Green Lantern, Our Man, Starman, and the Hawks confronting the Beast, while Dr. Midnight, the Atom, and the Flash evacuate the onlookers. But the Crawling Eye handily takes down the team members, instilling each with an intense feeling of fear. Even the Green Lantern Alan Scott succumbs, witnessing a Washington overrun by Nazis, and his fellow JSA members turned into Third Reich versions of themselves. The JSSA taunts Alan, saying that his fear won't let him confront his friends, but Green Lantern proves them wrong as he uses his ring to burn down those Nazi nightmares. But, in the end, Alan realizes that this was all just a mental projection caused by the crawling eye, so he musters his willpower and turns his ring's energy on it. This frees him from the illusion and brings him back to the real world, where the fear-inducer has been stopped and the people of Washington, D.C. have been saved. Flash forward in time to where test pilot Hal Jordan is borrowing a dollar bill from friend and mechanic Tom... Hi, face, Cal Macu. Tom wonders if the loan dollar is a good luck charm, and Hal says that he doesn't need a good luck charm when he's got a Green Lantern ring. But while he's recharging the ring, the CEO of Ferris Air and part-time love interest of Hal Jordan, Carol Ferris, enters the locked room, asking just what the holdup is. Making a quick switch to ensure that Carol doesn't know about Hal's secret identity, Hal suits up and takes the experimental aircraft for a test flight. But unfortunately, Hal's plane is fired on by a Russian submarine, blowing it up real good. Turning to Green Lantern, Hal bursts into the Soviet sub and subdues the soldiers within. With the baddies taken down, Green Lantern discovers that the Submariners were bringing a secret weapon to the U.S. to destroy it, one that Hal finds in a wooden crate. Shining a ring construct flashlight on it to get a better look at it, Hal is surprised when the supposed inert rock starts drawing power from his ring, eventually bursting forth from the ocean as an immense, otherworldly horror. Green Lantern attempts to take the nightmare down, but is thrown onto the shore by one of its thrashing tentacles. But all is not lost as backup has arrived in the form of the Justice League. Aquaman, Black Canary, the Martian Manhunter, and the Flash all engage the creature, eventually getting its attention. Which isn't such a good thing as it levels its gaze at Green Lantern, giving him a vision of a nuclear holocaust where all of Coast City has been destroyed and his teammates burnt to ashes. All, save for John Jones, who tells the Green Lantern that this is all an illusion, and he has to overcome his fear to defeat it. Watching the Martian Manhunter's body disintegrate in his hands, Green Lantern steals himself and blasts towards the being, delivering a super kink of Mea punch, blowing it up real good. And with that, Hal is snapped back into reality, where Coast City is intact and his friends are still alive. The way it should always be. Until the crisis. And then Infinite Crisis. And then Flashpoint. Flash forward again in time to present-day Warriors Bar, where former Green Lantern's Guy Gardner, John Stewart, and Alan Scott are regaling current Green Lantern Kyle Rayner with tales of Hal Jordan's exploits. 
Cal mentioned that he hopes to be as great of a role model as Guy, which of course is the way to go, but Guy retorts that Kyle has it easy as Green Lantern nowadays. When Alan was GL, the Nazis were the big bads, as were the communists when he and John were Green Lanterns. But now there's no real foe to face as a definitive enemy, which Kyle sees as a bit of a blessing and a curse. But the one thing he knows is that you have to be mindful of the past, as he raises a glass and toast to Hal Jordan. The next day, Kyle is busy trying to beat his deadline as a freelance artist and having no luck. Thinking the little trip to the museum might get his creative juices flowing, Kyle heads out to paint a version of one of his favorite pieces of art. However, his painting is broken up by an interruption from a raving loon babbling about end-of-the-world crap. Cut to the watchtower, where the assembled Justice Leaguers are waiting on a tardy Green Lantern to arrive when an alert goes off. It seems that Green Lantern's absence is due to him fighting a somewhat familiar foe that popped up at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. John and Arthur realize that this is the being that they fought those many years ago in Coast City, and they'll have to face it once again. But just as the League is about to teleport down to New York City, the power goes out on the moon base, trapping them there. Back in Manhattan, Kyle is preparing to harpoon the giant floating eyeball when he's blasted with a fear ray, making him relive all of his past failures. Luckily, Alan Scott was still in town and manages to catch Kyle before he fell back to Earth. Alan relates the fear-inducing power of the being to Kyle and decides to attack it with a radio antenna ripped from atop a skyscraper. Of course, this goes about as well as one would expect it to, and Kyle ends up reciprocating the catch that Alan made with him. Putting the Elder Lantern down, Kyle heads off to face the foe one final time, when he's met with the Justice League members who weren't hampered by the power outage. Superman tells Kyle that they're ready to tackle the menace, but Kyle tells the trio that he needs to do this alone. Flying into the maelstrom, Kyle burst forth with an explosion of emerald energy, sending the being shooting skyward and saving the city that never sleeps. Some time has passed, and Kyle is pointing toward the stars, showing Alan Scott where the being headed off to. Alan remarks that Kyle was able to get past his fears and see that the being only wanted to go home, and Kyle agrees although he is saying that there was only one man who was truly fearless, as they both gaze upon the statue of Hal Jordan. This was a decent story with some interesting painted art. Brad Parker doesn't seem to have too many credits to his name outside this book and a couple of books called Code of Honor over at Marvel. Um, he might have more work outside the comic book industry, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, these were his only three comic-related uh, art pieces of art. So perhaps if Brad Parker has done other stuff, it's just not mentioned in Mike's. Um, his painted style is much like the highly acclaimed Alex Ross, except he doesn't quite have the artistic talent that Ross does. His character designs sometimes vary from panel to panel, and there is not as much consistency in his characters as Ross has. However, what he does have over Alex Ross is a good storytelling style, as the panels really flow like a regular comic and not just a series of flashing paintings. 
one of the things I've heard people complain about Alex Ross is his art design is really nice. His his paintings are really good. I'm being very generic in my in my depiction of what Alex Ross does, but he doesn't have a good storytelling style. He doesn't know how to structure a comic. He doesn't know how to go from panel to panel. And Brad Parker seems to have a bit more flair for that. So what he's lacking in specific artistic talent specifically that Ross may have, he completely blows Ross out of the water with being able to tell a cohesive storyline. Um, the multi-generational story is good fun. I really enjoyed it. And it's great to see the various superhero teams do their stuff. Again, Mars's writing is really wonderful with him easily capturing all of the various characters' voices. And he's able to do a lot of them here as he's got essentially three generations of heroes dealing with a mysterious, unworldly, unearthly being. So I really enjoyed this. Out of the two books, this would happen to be the better one. But let's go ahead and go into the page by page. The cover... Now, I'm looking at a scan of the cover because I couldn't find this issue for a reasonable price around. And, you know, sometimes you just have to go with the scan. So I have a scan of the soft cover version, and it's a nice cover. It's got the three lanterns with their hands held high in a sort of Green Lantern version of the uh, Black Power salute with them all raising their fists up high. It's a nice image, and I think this is where Brad Parker's... Uh, painting really shines as you get some nice texture on the on the gauntlet of Kyle and the two gloves and the and the sleeve of Alan's uniform so it's a nice nice cover and I guess it shows that this is going to be a multi-generational Green Lantern story page two we see that the dollar bill with the quote-unquote all-seeing eye at the top of the pyramid is being used as a framing sequence for these stories and I think that's kind of a nice touch it's not specifically said if this is the same dollar bill throughout the entire story but the fact that it is the framing sequence i think works for me with the story plus i really like the borders of these of this first sequence in the book set in the uh, jsa era uh, all will look like a close-up of the dollar bill so that's kind of a neat thing we've seen in various books that the borders have been used to set the tone for the book, and it's done here with a really exemplary style. Page 3, panel 6. Oh, yes, I'm I'm definitely not a Nazi. I'm from Switzerland. Yes, windmills and wooden shoes and all that. Yeah, this character looks almost photo-referenced, and I think photo-reference is what you're getting a lot in this book, as Brad Parker is pulling from various different characters that he knows to create the characters in this book. The character of this Swedish guy, who's really a Nazi, definitely looks like the character of Toth from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, down to the black fedora and the long black, I don't know, maybe even leather jacket and the, the sort of circular spectacles. It's, he's not fooling anyone. Page six, we get a really nice painted, painted actual photograph of the JSA along with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who here we see is standing up. Now, <clears throat> if you didn't know, Roosevelt suffered from 
polio, which made him have very limited walking abilities. In fact, he really couldn't get around without crutches. So to see him standing up was kind of a thing that he did to basically to quell people's feelings that he was weakened or somehow. If you saw the president standing up, you knew that he was a strong man. And even if he, I don't know how much he kept his, uh, the idea that he had polio and couldn't effectively walk on his own a secret, but it's kind of in most cases when he's shown in a photograph, he's even either shown sitting at a table with people discussing things or standing simply for the photo op. So I like this here and, and it's nice to see all the uh, JSA members. We've got our man, the uh, Jay Garrick flash, Dr. Midnight, the Adam, the, the hooded sort of little, uh, punchy Adam rather than the Ray Palmer Adam. Shira and Shaira and Carter, uh, Alan Scott and Green Lantern, and uh, Starman as well. So it's it's a really nice image of all of these characters. Page 10. I'm assuming it's page 10. The, 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 the pages aren't really well numbered in this book. We get an image of the alien being that's been attacking Washington, D.C., and it's essentially a giant eyeball uh, walking around on its sort of optic nerve stalks it's all kinds of creepy the eyeballs Ugh. then moving on to page 16 here's one of the neat things where alan is zapped by the fear inducing beam from the eyeball creature he sees this vision of the world taken over by the nazis and in the sky are zeppelins with you know lights uh spotlights f shooting up on them and the world the sky is all sort of red and the the uh, lincoln memorial has the uh Nazi flags with the swastikas on them, you know, flying in front of it. So it's all really a, a horrific image that Alan's seeing, and it's all sort of subtly bordered again. They've changed the border from the dollar bill to these uh, various different versions of the swastika. So it's it's kind of neat subtly putting that inside there to, to frame the uh, images here. So I like that. And then on the next page, I guess page 17, panel 1, you get the Nazi version of the JSA, or what I'd call the JSSA. And it's essentially the same designs with some added Nazi emblems on there, like the Hawks on uh, Carter's, what would I say, his, his chest straps in the center of it has a swastika, and Shaira has uh, one on her belt, uh, Starman. His symbol on his chest is now a swastika, as the hood of the atom is now covered with a swastika. Jay's lightning bolt along his uh, chest or on his shirt is now replaced with the SS symbol, which I guess is also supposed to be, I guess, the bolt of Wotan, which is a lightning bolt as well. So it's, it's a neat design. I think Parker's art really shines here. I don't know specifically who he's photo referencing for Jay, but he looks pretty cool. But moving further into the book, we get the introduction of the Hal Jordan portion of it. And, of course, it couldn't be a 1960s Hal Jordan story without Tom Pieface, Kalmaku there. Uh, I'm dreading a story that's going to be coming up that's going to deal a lot with Tom Pieface, Kalmaku. Uh, moving on. I guess page 24, 25... 24, I think. We get the uh, scene with Carol seeing Hal in his jumpsuit, and it's 
kind of unzipped down to his waist and he's being all hunky and everything and Carol's kind of embarrassed with uh, how they're so it it makes that scene in the uh, Greenland movie where what's his name Ryan Reynolds decides to take off his pants uh, dress in front of Blake Lively makes it seem kind of well less silly I guess Page 30, I like when Hal confronts the two uh, Soviet seamen, or submariners, I guess, that he uh, threatens them with a giant Kilowog construct, which is kind of neat, as they think it's a demon. But um, Kilowog's face looks kind of off. He just looks very generic. He doesn't have any of the sort of jowls or texture to him. So, like I said, Turner's artwork is decent, but it's kind of inconsistent. However, when it does shine, it shines really well. Like here on page 34, where we get the new version of the alien, and it's it's straight out of a HP Lovecraft nightmare. And the artwork here is really beautiful. It's up against the sort of painted pastel blue sky with the sort of yellowish looks shining off the clouds. And it's really horrific and disturbing. And I... If I may complain about his art, it does. The the only thing I could say is it's inconsistent because here, this is a really nice image. And then later on the book, we'll just get stuff that's not so good. Then on page one, we get an image of the devastation of Coast City and the JLA. And it's pretty horrific. It's shown in that same sort of red hue that we saw with the Alan Scott dream sequence. But it's... It's kind of nice to know that this devastation of Coast City didn't make Hal go all crazy pants and destroy, try to destroy the Green Lantern Corps. So why couldn't, why could he withstand this? But you know, when it actually happened, yeah. Well, maybe I less the best said less said about that the better. Page forty six, panel two. This is again where Turner's art looks a bit inconsistent. Hal's face here, he looks kind of doofy with a sort of weird grin on his face. And he's got his hand holding up, uh, you know, to the side of himself. It's kind of his right hand stretched over in front of him. And the imagery has two rings on it, which is kind of weird because he's talking about, oh, I don't want anything happening to Coast City you know, I, I wouldn't like something like that happening in Coast City. And they say, oh, come on. I doubt Coast City will have much to worry about with you around. <laughs> uh, yeah. Page 47, panel 3. There's a nice little Easter egg here with a $107.56 bar tab made out to hitman Tommy Monaghan. Uh, I thought that was kind of amusing. I'm certain... Tommy being a, from what I know of, drinker and a character who probably hung around in New York City, he probably would have gone to Warrior's Bar and raised up a $107 tab. Also on this page, however, the artwork does kind of diminish as well because all of the former Lanterns really look off-model here. Turner might be taking from different characters that he knows of, but... No one really looks good. In fact, Guy looks more like Michael Rappaport than he does Guy Gardner. I can't specifically place Alan, John, or Kyle as a certain person, but 
yeah, Guy looks like Michael Rappaport, and I don't see Michael Rappaport as Guy Gardner. Page 49, maybe, however, when I get a better look at Kyle, he looks a little bit like Kyle McLaughlin from Twin Peaks, or currently from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I'm not really certain. Plus, we also get to hear more of Mars's love to make Kyle into an actual student of art as he goes to the museum to try and paint something that he's been enthusiastic about, so I like that. Page 51, I found this amusing. Batman has a digital watch built into his gauntlet, uh, and the fact that it's in the shape of a bat, which, that just amuses me, that, of course, Batman would be into the branding and he'd have a bat watch. Surprisingly. But after that, my notes get kind of sparse. Not really till page 62, where we get the flashback phase, or this flashback page of Kyle looking at all the failures in his life. And it it just looks bad. Uh, Batman has weird alien teeth. Uh, Major Force looks kind of doofy. And Donna just really looks awful. It's just... Like I said, the inconsistency in the art. We get that panel of the alien being rising out of the ocean looks amazing. And then we get this throughout the book. It's just inconsistent and bad. So I might as well move on to pretty much the end of the book. You know, page 71, I don't get the idea why everyone was so unsure of Kyle, especially Superman, who just pages before this said that they should trust Kyle and that he knew what was going on, but after things looked like it might get out of hand, everyone's like, oh no, why did we trust Kyle? We were so foolish to do that. So, And I thought that by this time that the Justice League would have been accustomed to trusting Kyle, that they would have, they would have believed in his judgment calls, but eh, whatever. Aside from those little minor nitpicks and the art not being as consistent as I would have liked it to be, this was an interesting issue. I I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the Joker's Last Laugh storyline, probably because it had no graven in it, so that's always a good thing. But if you can find this, might be kind of difficult because the soft cover might be in like the... I'm not certain if it's still being printed, so you might have to go to eBay and find it, but it was an interesting read. But, of course, next time out, we're going to be covering some more Greenland books. In fact, I think next time we're just going to be covering a single Greenlander book, which will be Greenlander number 144, where we find out more about Kyle and his path to godhood, path to ionhood, maybe. Plus, we'll be reading any email that I get in and playing some promos, so I hope you'll come back next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week, and we'll see you in seven days on another episode of Just One of the Guys. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. 
All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well. And now you can find me there as it was a requirement of my new Demazacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Steve Miller and the song The Joker off the album in the same name. As always, this music is something that you should buy. And the place you should buy it from is Amazon.com. But wait, don't just go directly to Amazon.com. Go first to TwoTrueFreaks.com. When you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com, there's a little banner up in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage. Click on that banner and you'll be directed to Amazon.com, where you can purchase Steve Miller and his song, The Joker, or any other of Steve Miller's great hits. You can also buy electronics, games, music, whatever you would like, and all at ridiculously low prices. Plus, every time you use the link at twojuefreaks.com to make a purchase from Amazon, a small amount of your purchase price comes back to the website. You won't see any extra cash taken out of your wallet, but it will allow Amazon to give us a little money to keep the shows going. So anytime you want to support yourself with some great music, great entertainment, great games, or great whatever, make sure you use the link at twotruefreaks.com to get you to Amazon.com.